Hello, welcome back to How to PhD, episode number 20. In this episode, we're going to be talking about systematic reviews. Hello and welcome back to the show. My name is Aaron and I'm joined as ever by my co-host Julia. Hello. And this week we are talking about a, well it's another methodology episode and this time we're talking about systematic reviews, Julia. And this is something that you have a lot of experience with, right? Yes, I'm quite excited about this episode. I love doing systematic reviews and I've I've done one um, as part of my PhD and then I think I've, I've done one scoping um review which is a little bit different so we're focusing on systematic reviews today but it's quite a similar process and then I've been working on another systematic review which um is going to be published soon as well um so yeah I'm quite excited and hopefully we can share a lot of practical tips with you today yeah so it's a very useful technique um that really I only learned when you told me about it and I think it has you know having having learned about it I think it has many applications that different stages of the PhD I think really ideally at the beginning but certainly you know if you're a little bit further on in the process it can certainly be very very useful so in this episode we're going to be talking about exactly what a systematic review is and particularly why you might want to consider doing one uh, the resources you need the steps involved and throughout we'll just pepper in some practical tips on exactly how you can conduct a systematic review yourself so Julie, let's get started with uh, with the first section, which is what exactly is a systematic review? So what is a systematic review? Well, I think in essence, Julia, it's basically like a very fancy literature review, right? Exactly. Um, so I didn't know what a systematic review was when I started my PhD. Um, I think I say that about, about most things um, that we're discussing. Yeah, oh, podcast, it's but it's true. I had no idea what it means. So to unpack that term a little bit, yeah. So review, it's a literature review. So you're basically summarizing what is known about a certain topic. But, and here's the, where the term systematic comes in, um, is that you record in detail how you searched um, literature, how you selected the literature, and how you extracted and analyzed data, and what the quality of articles um, that you included are. So you're doing um, a literature review, but in a very systematic way, um, in order, I guess, to reduce bias so that you're not like just including articles we like, but it's um, based on certain criteria that you set up before you start your systematic review. Yeah, and I think this is one of the questions that a lot of people, or certainly I had when you're just doing a, like a regular literature review, is how do you know when to stop, right? How do you know mm. that you have enough literature and that you've managed to capture as much or, or as much as you need to make your point, right? And mm. and so this whole method is basically to take the guesswork out of that. You're just you're just essentially going to systematically review everything. Um, and I think the real benefits of this, Julia, I think first of all, it, as I sort of mentioned, is that you get a very good overview of your research topic, right? You get a very detailed look, uh, a very thorough look at everything that exists for your particular research question. Mm. Um, and I think. Uh, the the sort of chances then uh, I think often when we think of literature reviews we don't often think about publishing them but that's very much true for systematic reviews is that you can definitely publish a systematic review yeah and I think a lot of PhD students have to start you naturally have to start often by just reading a lot right and summarizing and and in your thesis you will start usually your thesis by um giving a 
background about the literature, right? So why not do it in a systematic way that also will give you get mm. you a publication out of it? So I think it does make sense. It's quite common in the medical field to do it. So I think it's not as popular in no. other areas yet, but I think why not do it um, in, a, yeah. in a proper way? So I think, and also I think it's a great skill to have and that's what I experienced. So once you've done a systematic review, you can apply it to different topics and get involved in other people's um, research, which it's exactly what I did. So my friend um, was doing a systematic review and needed someone to help her with. And although I'm not an expert in her um, topic because I'd done it once before, I was able to, um, to support it and mm. yeah, got another um, publication out of that. And I think that's that's really great. Um, so yeah, a good skill to learn. And also another benefit is you do not need um, ethical um, approval to to um, do systematic review, and you don't need recruitment. So it's quite you can, yeah you don't need a lot of resources, which we're going to talk about a bit more in a second. But so it's quite cost effective, really. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Now you mentioned resources at the end, so let's talk about that next. So now that we know what systematic reviews and potentially why you know the benefits of doing one um let's talk about what exactly you need to do one so let's talk about what you need to do a systematic review now this section should be relatively short because as we're about to find out it's it's not so much that you need right julia yeah but the things that you do need is time i think is one of the most important things it can take a lot of time i think roughly um up to nine months maybe but i've done um the the latest uh, systematic review that i did and i did i think in within four months or so it really depends how much literature there's out so it might vary but yeah um do calculate like um like time enough time and i think we're gonna give you a little bit more information later onwards on um what you need to consider time for um, another thing that you need usually is a team. So usually um, you are not doing a systematic review yourself, but you have someone supporting you um, because it's good practice to have a second person like helping you with different steps. And we're going to talk about that more later. Is that essential for publication? Actually, I'm not. Um, I think in the medical field, it's yeah, usually good practice really to do it or if not then explain why I mean of course you might have restraints um, or if, if you can't find somebody but mm. um, I think you have a higher chance of publishing it because it just reduces bias if somebody else mm. helps yeah. you in the process but we talk about that a bit more later yeah, we'll, I think. We'll, we've got that coming up exactly why you need more than uh, more than yourself um, <laughs> and then of course you need a reference manager because uh, you need something to be able to Put your papers in as again as we're about to talk mm. um, it's going to be quite evident why you need a bit of a, a bit of a help uh, mm. software help with that um, access to the internet of course <laughs> is really essential it's an um, obvious one but yeah and, and particularly you know access to these types of databases is really, yeah. uh, really hopefully important. if you're doing a phd or um yeah are at a university hopefully you will have that access um, yeah. to literature yeah, and, and if not, do get in touch with your supervisor and, and find out mm. uh, how you can get in touch or get access to this kind of these kind of databases. Um, and when we say databases, we mean like the really big ones like sort of, you know, Science Direct and mm. uh, Scholar, um, IEEE, other ones in my field. I think you've got some other ones, right? That... Yeah, so in the medical field, usually Medline and Enbase yeah. are the two big ones that you would usually um, search for. Um, but yeah, it might, might yeah. differ. Okay, so as you can see, not a whole lot that you need, but time and a team is probably the, the trickiest part of, mm. of the whole thing. Uh, so 
Once you have your resources lined up, you now need to develop your plan. And that's what we're going to talk about next. So let's talk about developing the plan for your systematic review. Now, uh, this essentially consists of two key things, right? It's developing that research question, which I'm sure, you know, everyone uh, is very familiar with that process, or certainly you, you've heard of that process from your from your supervisors. Uh, and the second part of that is creating what's called a protocol. So let's talk about the research question part first. Now, in episode 10 of How to PhD, we talk uh, quite a lot in detail about how you find a research question. So please do check out that episode. Um, but there are some things specific to systematic reviews that's important to consider when you're creating your systematic reviews research question. Um, so I guess the first thing, Julia, is, is basically to check that nobody is planning the same review that you are right yeah so i think um, so in the medical field there's this um like kind of database called prospero where you can check um what what people what kind of reviews people are planning but i think there are different kind of um places where you can look what other people are planning to do in terms of systematic reviews and i think we're gonna have a resource for that which we put on on the show notes um but you can just browse like um, scholar or google yeah google scholar um so just have a look in the literature um and also i would recommend to find a few papers in advance that would be included so once you have a research question find some papers that would answer your question so that you know uh, it's worth doing um, a review that you know there is literature out there that can help answer your research questions otherwise there's not much point really and also i think it's important to get a feel what they call a feel for the literature to get a vibe of how much um, literature there's out there if there's not so much maybe a systematic review is not the best thing and um, because if, if you just think about it if there are let's say there are only two papers that can answer your research question then is it really worth doing no, a summary yeah. of that because people might just be able to read two papers right but if they're like more paper let's say 20 for someone it's um it's really useful to have that literature review because it summarizes everything that's known about that specific question. Yeah, that's yeah, right. So get a feel for the literature. That's right. Yeah. So hopefully with with that, you know, that you've looked at a few papers and, and you've seen that nobody is doing what you're doing, then you can sort of create that research question with all the tips that we had in episode 10. Um, and then, of course, as I said, the, the second part is what's called the protocol, which essentially is what you're going to be doing in, in terms of the method of your systematic review. And this is the this is probably the really unique part about the whole systematic review method is that it's it's super transparent about how you are searching for your literature. So, I mean, typically these are about five pages long, so they're not, you know, yeah, maybe th this is longer. give or take. It depends, but um, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So but long. the point is, it's, it's not like a, you know, thesis level or, no. or the length of a paper. Um, mm. It's it's relatively short and it's it's essentially outlining exactly what you're going to do. And it's the, the point about this protocol is that it's important to publish this, right? So normally you think about publishing the final thing, but actually... Uh, it's very common with systematic reviews to publish this plan of what you're going mm. to do, right? Yeah, at least in the medical field, it's um, yeah becoming, I think, even more popular. Um, but I don't know how it is in different areas, but I came across um, this website from Cornell University Library, um, and they have like a range of different places where you can publish protocols. And why we're doing that is basically just to let other people in the world know I'm going to do that systematic review so you're not duplicating work that other people are planning to do and yes yeah, you said you have a clear plan so again you're reducing bias because you're saying in advance like what you're gonna do 
and what you're gonna include or exclude so you really think through like um what what the focus of your mm. review is yes and now if you're wondering what exactly goes into this protocol now there's very kind of structured um method of of writing this protocol a bit like the entire method itself um and so uh kind of frameworks called like prisma prisma um, yeah which we'll have a link to basically tell you exactly what needs to be in this protocol document um, and of course the other method that you can do to write your protocol and know which headings and, and things you need to answer is to find other protocols in your field and, and to see how they do it um, mm. and of course remember you, while this protocol is it's important to really spend your time getting it right and you know making sure that you have the right research questions and the right plan uh, it is possible to of course update or change your protocol after publishing it and I think the key thing with this and with the entire PhD is basically to keep track of, of all these changes. And, and why and, you did it, yeah, why. justify why um, why you had your change or adapt your plan. Um, but yeah, that, that's okay to do that. Yeah. Yes. So we haven't actually talked about what goes into this protocol and that's what we're going to be doing now. Essentially, there are a whole range of different steps in a systematic review which you follow in a kind of chronological order. So we are now going to dive in, in this next section. It's going to be reasonably detailed but we're going to essentially break down each one of these steps uh, and exactly what you need to do and all of this content that we're going to mention in the next section is what you include in your protocol so hopefully that clears it up so let's talk about actually executing a systematic review so let's talk about actually doing a systematic review and what exactly is involved. So essentially we have broken this down into six key steps. And the first step is of course, to search the literature systematically, right? And I think the key uh, unique thing about this search is that you really um, formally record the search string, right? So that the actual words that you're using to search, uh, that you formally record that and, and you record that using what's called Boolean, which is essentially um, you have a keyword in kind of the the uh, brackets or not brackets, but like the apostrophe. Mark. Oh <laughs> yeah, I completely forgot the name of those things that go around words. Um, and then you use the kind of operators like and and or um, and, and the kind of asterisk symbol uh, to essentially paste in the same exact search keywords into every single database mm -hmm. that you're using. Although you will have to adapt it a little bit because each database works a bit differently but yeah you should make sure um that it is roughly the same everywhere so that you don't yeah get any bias there. and it's really really important i think um to be patient here and to like have a have a round of goes at your search strategy because on the one hand it has to be broad enough right so not to exclude mm. um too much um uh, not sorry yeah uh, yeah broad, not to ex Oh God, what am I going to do? Yeah, find everything that you need. But on the other hand, um, if it's yeah too narrow, then it's also not, not well. So you have to have a play around. Um, um, for example, like um, my supervisor, she was doing a systematic review um, about um, emails or like how emails work and like um, kind of digital health. And if you include the term, search term email, you will find up loads of um, like reference mm. will show up and it can be too too broad um so it's really tricky so, so spend a lot of time this on that. is the yeah this is the key working out your keywords that you're going to search is is a really really important part of this process and again yeah as you mentioned with email if i search for car 
and design mm. there's going to be like millions of results so which are just narrow down to, a bit more um, yeah yeah it's about finding the right number of keywords which are unique enough but also broad enough to get you the answer to your research mm. question so again this is a bit of trial and error but once you have this you you take those exact same keywords and you put them into the different databases Database or websites sometimes yeah. you might also want to um yeah search websites for example if you include like policy guidance or something like that um it depends like so just um, say what um, database or what, what sources you're using and why. Mm -hmm. And you can, for example, use similar reviews in your field to look up what kind of um, sources um, they use. And then you can kind of reference us as well to kind of um, justify why you used um, certain databases. Yeah. And as I mentioned at the, at the start of this this step is that you, you have to really save this, what you Very searched important. in yeah. each database. Uh, and and really importantly, the date that you did it, okay? Mm -hmm. and, and you save that you, for example, you know, I searched, um, let's say, um, Science Direct on this date with these keywords mm -hmm. and you put exactly what you searched for. And that's that's really, really key in the systematic review. Yeah, and it's important because stuff might be outdated. So, for example, I did one uh, scoping review. Again, it's similar to a systematic review. And uh, we did that on, it was like related to COVID. And obviously, because um, the pandemic is ongoing there's loads of new um, literature being published all the time so um the the more um yeah studies are being published on a topic the more you have to make sure that your search is up to date because otherwise it might not be relevant your findings might not be relevant anymore so yeah, yeah. it's quite time sensitive so yeah, note down the date and yeah everything yeah. um yeah I, I would i think i forgot to mention that but i would keep a diary on everything you do on your systematic review everything you change everything you add to it just keep note of everything yeah so once you've searched for it, you obviously will have, you know, a couple of pages, maybe 20, 30 pages of results, right, as on, on the website or the database that you've searched for. You've then got to export all of these results, or all of these references into your reference manager, right? So there's no kind of uh, screening at this point. You are taking everything that that search has produced and putting it into your reference library. And you do that. The, the same thing again for all the different databases that you're saying that that you said that you're mm -hmm. going to search for right and this is really where systematic reviews are really unique and also massively time consuming right because you're taking every single result um so people like librarians data information specialists if you have access to those people they can be a huge yes. huge help um in in managing this process and particularly mm -hmm. going through this search process so do get in touch with them and of course you can uh, you should definitely acknowledge them uh, in the future paper that you will that you will publish from this. Or even in the protocol, you can say um, a librarian will support um, the search strategy and just they are the experts, right? So um, I think it it gives you a little bit of reassurance that not everything is on you <laughs> with the search strategy that you have some support, and um, yeah, so definitely a yeah. useful thing to do. And I think the key thing about noting the date that you you search all of this stuff on is that you really I think typically you should look to publish your findings from this systematic review within nine months of the date that you searched for and, and again yeah. this it, it's kind of as you mentioned you know something that's super fast moving like mm. covid or you know certain fields of computer science that are moving super super quickly uh maybe that's a shorter time frame and, and maybe this this kind of method is a little bit too slow for those particular types of fields. But 
if you have the the right kind of field, then I think nine months, six to nine months is kind of a good time frame. Yeah, to, I to think look, you just run the risk that um, the journal will come back to you and say, this is great, really interesting. But your search is like mm. a year ago. We don't think uh, the findings might not be relevant because there's new stuff published. Please, can you update your search? And it's a huge amount of work to do it again. Yeah. Um, I know some people um, updated their um, systematic route at the end of their PhD because they did it at the beginning. I personally, I did because I said it would inform my future studies so I didn't update it in the end but um, it is definitely something that a lot of people do um, because yeah. it's good practice that's right yeah um, so let's talk about step two so now you've done your search you've now got to and you've got you know however many thousands of references in your in your reference uh, library and EndNote or Mendeley whatever you're using uh, you've then got to actually then select the studies right now the important thing is, even though you've searched for these keywords that you've identified and you've done a great job of, of searching for, um, not all the papers that will come back will be relevant, right? And so this is where you've got to then look through the papers and begin to understand, okay, what's what's good and what answers your question uh, and what doesn't. And so essentially what we're doing is now filtering through. Uh, so the first thing is, of course, once you've imported all your references, uh, the first key step is to remove any duplicates, right? Because there will be some, if you use uh, several databases, they might have the same references. So it will come down a little bit, the number of references after deduplication, hopefully. Yeah, quite a lot <laughs> will be removed from this uh, deduplication process. Um, and so the key thing is, you know, really, you know, get this reference program prepared for the screening. Um, and what you're looking for at this first stage, once you've removed those duplicates, is really you're only looking at the title and the abstract. Yes, because you won't have time to screen 7,000 papers in full text. So it's normally just no. that you look just at the title and the abstract in yeah, the first and, round of screening. And, and, and I think, yeah, about seven, 8,000 papers is quite normal at this stage, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and again, the systematic process is we're just narrowing this down, right? And so basically what you want to be able to do is to set up your reference program so that you can click on a reference, look at the title and the abstract and very quickly say, okay, yeah, this is answering my question. This is maybe answering my question, and this is definitely not. I would avoid the maybes, though, because yeah. if you have a huge pile of maybes, it's going to make it really yeah, yeah difficult. And yeah. yeah, we're going to talk about that a bit more, that um, if you set really clear criteria of what to include or not, then hopefully you won't have too much in the maybe pile. That's right. Yeah. Now, there's a good method to this uh, kind of um, on a sort of technical level in mm. EndNote that Julia um, kind of found a good YouTube video from that you mm. didn't produce, but we'll have a link to it uh, in the show notes. And so now you mentioned this a little bit, um, you teased it just in your previous uh, sentence there, uh, but yeah, how do you know what to include and what to exclude, right? And basically, you know, why do you want to include or reject something from your kind of filtering process, right? And this could be for a number of reasons, of course, uh, the, the number one thing around kind of does it answer your research question is it is it what you're looking for but there can be other criteria that's important so for example uh, languages you might choose to only search uh, or filter papers by a particular language right it could be about the publishing date right are you going to accept papers uh, from your search which come from you know 1940 or is it relevant because in some fields that might be in others it might not be a good idea study design the kind of uh, test population um, and I think I think the key thing with these inclusion and exclusion criteria which again is all listed in that protocol at the beginning uh, is that it's really important that they're super clear for anybody else to understand but in particular 
the team that you're working with on your systematic review. Exactly, because usually um, a second person, um, a second researcher, will also screen um, the papers at title and abstract stage um, to reduce bias or to make sure that that you like that, okay, I'm going to exclude this, but actually it would be relevant. So usually two people are doing it. And if you, you can imagine if you're not on the same page with the second re reviewer on what is going to be included or not, then it will be really difficult. And as I said, you will end up with a huge maybe pie because it's not really clear what we want to include mm. there or not. So again, spend a lot of time um, debating about um, inclusion, excluding criteria also with your supervisors um, to make sure you're really happy with it because you don't want to repeat that. You don't want to go through that progress twice that you have yeah. to start again um, screening so really get that right spend a lot of time um, usually um, a second reviewer will um, do at least 10 to 30 percent ideally 100 percent so that both of you have reviewed everything but sometimes that's just not practical so i think 10 to 30 percent is acceptable but again look at your um, field how it's done yeah and so essentially you have two people going through the, the roughly the same process of getting all the references mm -hmm. and then kind of filtering through them. Um, and then the key thing is to, as you say, discuss it with them, resolve any disagreements in the kind of maybe pile, or perhaps you look through mm -hmm. the reject pile and you've kind of disagreed on a few. Um, and essentially, you know, you're confirming uh, the final list um, based on the title and abstract. And I think typically at this point, you will have narrowed down from about a couple of thousand papers uh, to about 150 or so. Again, there's Roughly, no... Yeah, there's no right or wrong, yeah. but just think about how much time do you have? Like if you have like 500 papers to review in full text, that's quite a lot. And so um, again, that might be an indicator that your research question is too broad, um, but it depends on your um, yeah time restraints, which yeah. you probably have in your PhD. Yeah. Yeah, and so you've kind of teased the next step there, which is once you have this list of papers which are just filtered on title and abstract, of course, the next level up is then to actually read the full paper. Um, and then you essentially go through again. So you look through the full papers of this 150, 200, however many papers you have. Um, and then you create your final list, which again, you should be aiming for around hopefully 20 to 40 at this stage. And if you have more than that or massively less then probably the research question is either too broad or too specific yeah i mean i think i've seen systematic reviews which only had four papers um but yeah i think 20 to 40 is probably um a good amount um in the scoping review that i did again a little bit from systematic review but we had 110 papers included and it's a lot to keep an overview at all the different findings it's, it takes a lot of time and um, yeah, so I think, yeah, keep it um, yeah. manageable. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, you can do a final check. And, and what you can do then is once you've got to this point and you have like 20 papers, say, you can then even double check and the, the reference lists of those papers that you found, right, to make sure that mm -hmm. there's nothing that you've missed. But essentially, that is the big bulk of the process is that you're, you're going through thousands of papers, mm -hmm. first by the title and abstract, mm -hmm filtering through filtering through until you get to maybe ideally about 20 yeah. to 40 papers and yeah just like roughly i can just from my personal experience um i think i have been able to screen around 500 papers a day but it is a lot and it's quite tiring and yeah. in my <laughs> for i think in my phd i even at sometimes did 1000 papers a day 
which oh is, but I would never, <laughs> never do that again. So I think it's better. Um, I mean, you can do the systematic review alongside other things. Um, for example, I think I was applying for my NHS ethics at that time. So maybe don't do it full time, no. <laughs> um, but like do a little bit of screening every day. Um, and yeah, I, I found it quite satisfying because you see every day the progress that you make. Yeah. So in a way, it's quite a nice screening process, but also tiring. Yes. So... Let's talk about step three, which is extracting the data. But essentially what this is, is creating a little summary of this final list of papers, right? And again, as with a lot of the things in this process, two people should do it. Uh, but for example, the, the idea behind this is that instead of having to look at, you know, 40 different papers, um, you're creating a table which summarizes each of those. So you can quickly compare and just look across a table and see what the strengths and weaknesses and, and what each one is about. So for example, you might summarize the study title, the design, the authors, the results, maybe the date it was done. Um, and now, Julia, you said that you use, you like to use Word for this, uh, but you know, I think use anything where you can clearly uh, keep track of a, a large table mm, of, of yeah, 20 papers yeah. and, and summarize this. Now we'll have, again, a link in the show notes to exactly what you should ideally Examples, summarize from each yeah. of the papers. Um, we don't need to go through that here, but essentially you, you get the idea. Mm. Step number four is then once you have this and you kind of summarize the papers, do a quality assessment, right? Now there are many, many different checklists for assessing the quality of a paper. And it's, it's important to use a kind of standardized measure of paper quality. Um, and I guess the first question is, you know, will you account for this quality, right? What are you going to do with that? Will you kind of just assess it? Which I think is kind of the bare minimum is that you assess it and kind of say, look, these papers uh, were really high quality and these in, in this kind of short list were, were really high, not so high quality. Um, or will you go a step further and actually say, look, if it scores below this particular thing, I'm just going to exclude it. And you're filtering down even more at that stage. Um, or are you just looking for some context, right? So, so have, again, have a think with your supervisor exactly what you Just be what transparent about it, yeah. Why yeah. are you doing it and what are you going to do about that, yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, it's quite important that two people do it. You can also do it that one person does the quality assessment and the second person just checks it. Um, and I think for me that was quite important because especially when you're quite early on, I think in your... Um, research career then it feels really weird to criticize other people's yeah. work that has yeah. been published already you haven't published anything at that stage maybe and you are telling saying oh this is actually not um, good quality <laughs> or good quality reporting yeah. um and so i think it just increases your confidence if somebody else like your supervisor or um, someone a bit more experienced maybe um also comes to the conclusion that this specific paper is not yeah. um, reported very well that's right. Yeah. And again, we'll have some links to some quality assessment frameworks that you can use um, in the show notes, which I know are slightly out of date right now, but they, <laughs> they will be updated uh, by the time this episode comes out. Step number five in this process is what's called synthesis. But basically what that word means is that you're essentially trying to understand and bringing together I guess, essentially looking at how your papers answer that research question, mm. right? And and exactly what are they telling you? What's what's the outcome from all of this? Um, now, again, there are a whole load of different ways of synthesizing this, a lot of kind of academic theory behind this. So, for example, you could use a narrative synthesis, you can do content analysis, 
thematic analysis, meta-analysis. Um, so for example, something like narrative synthesis and thematic analysis would be used, say, for qualitative or mixed methods reviews. Now, mm-hmm. yeah. I think we, we don't need to go, again, mm-hmm. it would take many many episodes you could have an episode on each one of those types of you can let uh, us know if you're interested in that to hear more about i think we talked about thematic analysis a little bit before yeah but um yeah so i've I've used thematic analysis and narrative synthesis um for the reviews that i've done because they were like mixed methods um mixed method reviews um and again because i said earlier for data extraction i like to use um word and one of the reasons for that is because um you can use envivo um which is a software where you can analyze qualitative data and so i like to um, upload my data extraction sheets um from um the systematic reviews into envivo and just helps me analyze the data yeah yeah but the key thing is you know know which type of synthesis you're doing discuss it with someone experienced like your supervisor um and basically just just have a record of which one you used and and why and 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 which one works best for the question that you're trying to answer the final step um is writing it all up right which Mm. uh, compared to all of the searching and the filtering is is relatively (laughs) relatively smooth sailing uh compared to the heaviness of the 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 kind of beginning of the process Uh, again as we mentioned there are checklists for writing this up Uh, as with this entire method it's very very structured and and things like prisma uh, can also help with the pro not only just the protocol but also um with writing the actual paper itself. Um, So check the journal that you might have planned to submit to as well. Uh, Usually they have kind of requirements for for headings and, and what you need to show and why very it's very very common to have what's called a prisma flow diagram and essentially that's basically a diagram which labels each of the steps that we've talked about uh, here um, and basically says how many papers you had at this first stage and then after you did the this process how many papers were you left with and then you did the deduplication and then yeah. you did the screening and the second screening and so again please 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 it's... keep a diary of everything you do because like you might think oh i know what i did like in october <laughs> 2019 but then a couple of months later you can't remember why you did something please keep a diary write everything uh, every everything down yeah everything that you do every, all the decisions that you make which, which is true i think for the entire phd in general probably yeah uh, which be will be so useful <laughs> when you get to that viva wow so that was a a lot of a, uh, a lot of information it yeah. was a light speed uh, overview <laughs> of exactly what systematic reviews are now of course we can go into detail of a lot of these different steps and uh, do let us know if you'd like a particular aspect of systematic reviews covered in a future episode but hopefully that has given you enough to sort of go away and decide if this is something you want to do and, and hopefully uh, giving you insight into a method which you might not have considered before certainly I hadn't considered before um, and and giving you a good reason as to uh, or good understanding of exactly what this can do and, and the kind of benefits of the whole methodology so i hope that was useful um, and that's given you something that you can take away into your future work so here we are at the end of another episode of how to phd thank you so much for listening uh, of course if you know someone who might be interested in learning about systematic reviews then please do share it with them uh, and of course if you enjoyed this whistle stop tour of systematic reviews then please <laughs> leave us a review on apple podcasts or by visiting our website at howtophd.show and leaving a small donation through buy me a coffee as always huge huge thank you to all of our uh, donators and, and people who have supported the show 
show with reviews. It really means so much. And of course, we love to hear from you. So do get in touch over yeah. email. Um, contact at howtophd.show, Twitter and Instagram at howtophdshow. And you can and ask us any questions as well. I feel I had too much caffeine before this episode. Yeah. <laughs> I hope what I was saying did make sense. But yeah, come back to us if you have any questions. Absolutely. Yeah. Any any details. As, as many of you do, uh, we always, uh, it means so much to hear from you guys. Uh, and it's really, uh, really lovely to get engagement with the community, with the How to PhD community. Uh, and of course, thanks to jobs.ac.uk for continuing to share and promote our episodes. We really appreciate their support. So next week, uh, we're doing one which I think um, potentially is one that I kind of really didn't know a whole lot about. And I kind of sort of kind of uh, blagged my way through trying to do this, which is uh, essentially how to design and present research posters, right? Yes. Um, so hopefully we can give you um, a few tips on how to make a nice poster. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So lots of good tips in the next one. Uh, and we'll have some examples from our own research posters to share. So thank you again for listening. We hope you all have a wonderful week and we'll see you all next time.